Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Let's get down to business, shall we? Because we're in the series, A Greater Perspective. I started last week, and we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to give you a new and a greater perspective, that you would look at life differently. And I've, I've said this, and I'll continue to repeat this, that the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is that everything is upside down and inside out. It is counterintuitive. All the principles are counterintuitive. They cut across the grain of and are contrary to conventional wisdom of our culture. So the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The way up is down, the way down is up, and the you know inside is, is the out, and less is more and more is less, and it goes on and on like this. And it is really a remarkable understanding that if we live these principles that are backwards or reverse of our world, we will be amazingly successful. That's what this is all about. So last week, I started with the stairway to heaven, and I threw out the Beatitudes. I'm going to throw it up on the screen, and I presented it like a staircase. The Beatitudes are the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you don't understand the Beatitudes, you'll actually not get the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's important to spend a little bit of time on this. And I called it the stairway to heaven because I said they were progressive. It was like a staircase. I never explained how that was so and how it worked. I just laid it out there for you, wanted you to think about it and talk about it for a week. Hopefully you did. But today I'm going to show you exactly how progressive it is. And it's not only progressive upwards, it's actually progressive from the inside out, which is what we're going to talk about today. So let's begin with this. We'll talk about this staircase. So you go to the bottom, and that very, very first step is to be poor in spirit. Spent all last week on that. Poor in spirit means to be utterly, spiritually destitute, helpless and hopeless without God. And you come to recognize your need for Him. And then the very next step is that blessed are the more those who mourn, shall they shall be comforted. And mourning is the next step because it comes out of that sense of spiritual emptiness. Then you begin to have sorrow and mourn. You recognize how broken you are. And so you have remorse and you have regret and hopefully you have repentance. Fascinating. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7, he said that sorrow is better than laughter because the sadness of the countenance makes one's heart better. And so there's something really important about that step. And then the the third step is blessed are the, the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And, of course, this is the one nobody understands. They think meek means weak. It does not mean that. Uh, we have the two meekest people in the Bible, Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, two most powerful men in Scripture. So meek is really power under control. But here's a simple word for you if you want to understand it. It's the word humble. And so what happens in this process of being poor in spirit, beginning to mourn, then there are, we start to let go of our pride in this phase where we put ourselves under the control of God. And then the next step is a bit of a turn. Because this one is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. See, we spent the last three emptying ourselves, and now we're filling up. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. And hunger and thirst are the, the, the most powerful passions that a human can have. Way more powerful than sex. Way more powerful than money. Way more powerful than power. Food and drink, people, if they don't have those things, they will do anything. They will be desperate. 
And so God says, I want you to hunger and thirst after my righteousness. So now we're starting to fill up. And then the next step is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now here's what happened. See, this was all about ourselves. This was all about working internally. Now all of a sudden we're starting to turn outward. We are, because we've gone through this process, now begin to look at the world with new eyes and we look at other people and we realize they're hurt and they're broken like we were. And we start to have compassion and mercy on them. And and then we receive even more compassion out of that. And then the next step after that is blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And you know, people don't really understand what it means to be pure in heart. We're going to talk about that today. It's going to be my message today. But see, when God begins to purify our heart, he turns us into the kind of people we were meant to be. And then we take the next step. And the next step is, blessed are the peacemakers. And the peacemakers... For they shall be called the sons of God. They're not the people that are out there picketing wars and, you know, breaking up fights. The peacemaker are people who are sharing the gospel of peace. That are bringing people into reconciliation. The reconciliation of God and man. And so that people, you're helping lead people to make peace with their God. That's the peacemaker. You're actually now, I want you to see the progression through this. It started on the inside. It began to turn out. Now we're actually reaching out to a lost world with being the peacemaker. And then comes the next step, which is the best one. You start getting persecuted. (laughs) Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Now, understand this. There's a difference between adversity in life. Everybody gets that part of being in the human race. Persecution is unique. Persecuted for righteousness sake it's because you're sharing the gospel with people and the step before that you're sharing the gospel with them and they're going to have to respond one way or another and they'll either accept what you have to say or they'll reject it and persecute you and so it's not about just having hardships in life it's about having something so unique that when you are out there and being that person that the Beatitudes has created you to be, there are people who aren't going to like you. And Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when people revile you and hate you. Yeah, that's what I do. I get really excited. You know, you can do that if you've got a personality disorder. But, but in fact, he said that that's the greatest blessing. So I want you to see that picture. I've painted it for you. You're going up the staircase. You're moving progressively upward, but don't miss this. You're moving from the inside out. It all starts from the inside and moves out. And that's my message today, inside out. Because if you can get the inside right, the outside will take care of itself. You know, someone once said this, that beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness goes right down to the bone. And there's sort of think about that. There's sort of some truth to that. One of my favorite stories is about the guy who goes to the doctor and, and he walks into the doctor's office and the doctor says, so what seems to be the problem? He pulls off his hat and he's got a frog growing out of the top of his head. And the, the doctor says, whoa, how long has this been going on? The frog speaks up and says, well, it all started a month ago. It was a pimple on my butt. <laughs> you know, talking frog, Kermit, you know, it's got to be true, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount, of course, and uh, leave the Beatitudes behind for the most part. I have one little verse for you, and it's all about inside out. There's so many of them. The entire Sermon on the Mount, the entire Beatitudes, inside out, inside out, inside out. Listen to this carefully. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. He's talking about the fruit, but he says you don't focus on the fruit. The fruit is what's on the outside. The fruit is the evidence. The real issue is not the fruit. What's the real issue? The tree. The tree is the issue. And he says, so if you're a bad tree, the fruit's going to be bad. So don't focus on the, on the fruit. Focus on the tree. And if you will begin to change yourself and allow God to change you from the inside out, the fruit will follow. So you deal with the inside and the outside will take care of itself. So you go through the Sermon on the Mountain. Everything he says follows that directive. Give you a couple examples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you are guilty of judgment. Now, I'm wondering if you caught that. Murder's a bad thing. Not saying it's not. But he says, that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies with the anger that's in your heart, right? This is where it goes. Six verses later, he says, you heard it said. He's quoting from the Old Testament. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. heart. So he says, yes, adultery is a problem. But that's not the core problem. That's not the real problem. The real problem is in your heart. So you look at the Old Testament, a bunch of rules and regulations about ways you should act and ways you should live and behavior. And then you look at the New Testament. Jesus comes along and says, you got to stop looking there. The problem is in here. And if you look on the inside, everything begins to change. And that's why in the Beatitudes, God uses these words. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's all about being pure in heart. You say, well, I'm not sure I know what it means to be pure in heart. Well, you're not going to love this. The word pure is the Greek word katharos, which is where we get our English word cauterize. You know what cauterizing a wound is when you burn a wound to burn off the infection so it doesn't continue to to spread. And that's what he's talking about. Someone whose heart has been purified. Refiner's fire, the scripture calls it. And where the Holy Spirit goes inside and it starts to burn out the dross, burn off the dross, just like you refine gold and silver. You do it with what? Extreme heat. And so that's what God does with us. And that's when, 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 here's what should happen. When you're reading the Beatitudes or reading the Sermon on the Mount, it should start to burn that fire and start to change you from the inside out. So let me tell you about this journey. Some of you know I spent the last two years studying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you know, almost every day or at least every week, going back into it, reading it again and studying it out and, and looking things up. And it was really difficult for me because I'm spending two years in the Sermon on the Mount and I'm thinking to myself, I have to discipline myself. Don't preach this stuff. Don't waste it. Because when they get the book, I can preach it after the book's out. But if I preach it before the book's out, people are going to go, read it, know it, done it, boring. <laughs> so I thought, no, I got home. So I had to sort of, I had to sort of discipline myself not to get all that stuff out before the book came up. So this is what's going on with me. But that wasn't the hardest part. I'll tell you what the hardest part was. I'm in the Sermon on the Mount every day, and every day the Lord puts the screws to me. 
And he's dealing with something. Every day I had to deal with some terrible attitude I had towards somebody or something. Every day I had to phone somebody up and apologize to them. And I had to forgive people and deal with some dark, deep secret and sin in my life. And I'm thinking, enough, Lord. I said, if you don't quit bugging me, I'll never get this book written. This is what I'm thinking. And I felt like the Lord says, if I don't quit bugging you, you're never going to write it. You need to be bugged. You know why? Because it has to be real. It can't just be a bunch of theory. It can't just be a bunch of stuff I studied out and said, this is what you should do. I'll tell you, this is the worst part about being a pastor. You know, I stand up here and I talk pretty tough. You've heard me do this. And I'm pointing at you and telling you stuff. One finger pointing at you. How many pointing back at me? Three, and then I have to go home that afternoon every Sunday and repent for all my bad attitudes that I was accusing you of. <laughs> That's sort of how this happens. And so here's my point in all of this. The Sermon on the Mount works from the inside out. And the Sermon on the Mount, its intention is to purify your heart and turn you inside out. And then he says, what we will get out of the deal is we will get blessed. He said, we will be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, you know, those who are pure of heart. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Anybody know what that word blessed means? <laughs> it means happy. Can you believe it? It's the Greek word makarios and it means happy. And you know, you look at that. Yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who persecute. None of those things making me happy. <laughs> they, all, they all sound like negatives to me, mostly, right? Well, maybe, just maybe, we need to redefine what happiness is. And I think that that's the essence of it. Maybe we don't really understand what it is to be happy. And the happiness needs to be on the inside, not on the outside. See, see if you were to ask someone in our culture, anybody, doesn't matter who they are, if you go up and say, what do you really want if, out of life? What is the one thing you want out of life? What do they all say? Happy. happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. You know what? They are so lying about that. Oh, they want to be happy, but they also want a new iPhone, and they want a flat screen TV, and they want a house in Bridgewater Forest, and they want a new car, and they want a boat or a motorcycle, and they want season's tickets to the Winnipeg Jets. Don't tell me you just want to be happy. We have a very long list of stuff that we think is going to make us happy. And see, there's something wrong with this picture. You know, you look at, you know, it's funny because the United States, they have a motto. And they've been pursuing this motto for 250 years, and it goes like this, life, liberty, and the what? The pursuit of happiness. And a recent survey asked Americans, how happy are you? And only 33% of Americans said they were happy. 250 years? This isn't a very good track record. Not very many people happy. What is the problem? We don't understand happiness. We don't understand the essence of it, and we probably need to redefine the word. So I'm going to give you a little psychology lesson today. You know how I love doing this stuff. And I'm going to introduce you to a concept. It's, it's called the hedonic treadmill. And it's not that complicated. The word hedonic comes from the Greek hedone, which means uh, pleasure or the seeking of pleasure. We know the word hedonism in the English language. And in, in, in 1971, two psychologists by the name of Brinkman and Campbell came up with what they called the hedonic treadmill, or the hedonic adaptation was the other word for it. Here's a picture of it. It's a graph. It's super, super simple. And as, as we go through life, we have these series of uh, emotional 
things that happen to us because we have good stuff in our lives and we have bad stuff in our lives. And, and, and you know how this works. So if something good happens in your life, how do you feel? Happy. happy. You feel happy, right? Now, if something bad happens, how do you feel? I feel sad. And we all, we all know this. We all experience this. You, you know how it works, don't you? You get a raise at work. You come home. I'm in the money. I'm in the money. You can be higher and more elated in that moment. But then the transmission goes in your car. And now you're singing a different tune. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. And we go on this roller coaster. I don't know why they call it the hedonic treadmill. It's not a treadmill. It's a roller coaster. And it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. You've all lived there and you all know and understand this. We've all experienced it. Now, here's the most important part of what I'm going to tell you. So they discovered that human beings have a baseline of happiness. Now, I'm going to show it to you again. And they said, what happens is when good stuff happens in your life, you will eventually return to your baseline of happiness. And when bad things happen to you, you also will return to your baseline of happiness. And so as life uh, acts upon you and you're going up and down on this roller coaster, at the end of the day, you always return to this baseline of happiness. Now, different people have different levels of the baseline. Some are up here, some are down here, but we're all on this cycle like this. Now, here's the problem. You look at this and you say, that is so hopeless. Why do I want to be on this roller coaster of life? It was fascinating because they actually studied lottery winners and people who had been in tragic accidents that lost the use of their limbs. And they found out that the lottery winners were happy when they won, but eventually returned to the baseline. And the people in these accidents that even were paralyzed eventually actually rose back to their baseline of happiness. So how do we do it? How do we get, how do we get off it so we're not just living in this fatalism? And so I'm going to give you some principles today. How to get off the hedonic treadmill. Here they are on the screen. Number one, be grateful for what you have instead of worrying about what you don't have. This is so simple. We understand this. And of all people, people in North America, don't we have a lot to be grateful for? Yeah. I mean, my goodness, we're living in the promised land here. We have so much. I don't care who you are, or what your job is, or how much money you make. We have so much to be grateful for. And yet we're always thinking about what we don't have. Let me tell you something. If you're not happy with what you already have, you're not going to be happier if you have more of it. It's not really going to change anything. So that's number one. Number two is this. Number two is enjoy the journey instead of focusing on the destination. Boy, you know what? This is so important. This is probably the most important one of all of these. Is that life is a journey. It's not a destination. And when people focus on the destination, it is, it is so self-defeating. Oh, I'll, I'll be happy when I get a raise. Oh, I'll be happy when I get a promotion. I'll be happy when I retire. Okay, that's fine. How about the here and now while you're on the journey there? Why are you focusing on this destination? Which, incidentally, you probably won't be happy when you get there. Instead of enjoying the journey along the way. I'm going to give you an illustration you'll all understand. Some of you more than others. But how many of you in this room have ever been on a cruise ship? How many of you been on a cruise ship? Bunch of hands going up in the room. They had a good time, did you? Yeah, you had a good time. You liked the cruise ship? So here's how the cruise works. If you haven't been on one, you can pretty much imagine it. It's not that complicated. You get on a ship in Florida somewhere or wherever, and then you go to the Bahamas or you go to the Caribbean, and you're having these, this nice cruise, and then you have these ports of call into different places, and then you come back. Now, my question is this. Is it about the journey on the cruise ship, 
or is it about those protocol, those destinations? Journey or destinations? It's about, the, it's about the journey. So as, and maybe it is about the both, but you know what the destinations? They're not that great. They drop you off in some, some city in some nice place and you spend three hours buying a t-shirt and then you get back on the stupid boat. And the boat, the journey is much more enjoyable than the ports of call because on, on the journey, they feed you 17 times a day. You, you just, it's all free. So you're eating as much as you can. The average person it gains 15 pounds in one week. But that's average. Some manage 20. And, and you, you can eat 10 times a day and you get ice cream for dessert after every single meal. It's the journey, people, that you enjoy. Not the destination. So y'all, y'all get that, what I'm talking about. If it's about the destination, fly to the destination. Don't take the cruise ship. Life is not a plane ride. Life is a cruise ship. We have to begin to enjoy the journey and every part of that journey. Got to enjoy every part of that journey. Now, if you were to go and ask whatever pastors you know, doesn't matter, go ask any pastor you know, ask them this question. What was the most difficult and challenging time in your ministry in your whole life? And they will all tell you the same thing. COVID-19, the pandemic. They all had a terrible time. I mean, it was tough. There was more people quitting and resigning and retiring during that time than, than any other time because it was, it was sort of a miserable time. In Winnipeg, it was worse than almost anywhere because the church was shut down for a year and a half. We spent a year and a half, I spent a year and a half in this room preaching to 1,900 empty chairs and three camera people. And so people would phone me up. And they say, Pastor Mark, how are you doing? I said, fantastic, couldn't be better, living the dream. <laughs> I told them that every day. I said, I'm living the dream. Now, here's my question for you. Was I really living the dream? Nope. I wasn't exactly living the dream. But I'll tell you what I was doing. I had made a decision to enjoy the journey. And you know what? Honestly, looking back and even at the time, I thought, this is weird. This is weird, but I'm enjoying the journey. I mean, probably 50 times I stood in front of this camera and preached to an empty room. And I had a great time because I can laugh at my own jokes. I cracked myself up. I am so funny. Do you know that? I, I don't need you to have fun, it turns out. It was still super weird, but I learned a lot about technology, and I learned a lot about human nature. You know what I learned? People are terrible. That's what I, that's what I, that's, 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 that's what I found out. I was so disappointed when they all came back. <laughs> I'm so kidding. See how I'm enjoying this journey right now? See how this works? And so we have to enjoy the journey along the way. So that's the second thing. Last thing is this. We need to change our goals to intrinsic aspirations instead of extrinsic aspirations. Now, I've talked about this before, and it's not that confusing. Extrinsic means external. Intrinsic means internal. And the extrinsic goals in people's lives... And you know what these things are. They're things like wealth and recognition and acceptance and uh, appearance and all the things that are external. And we have a lot of external goals. Intrinsic aspirations are things that have to do with who we are. So they're things like uh, in, inner peace and, and well-being and our relationships and all these inner things. And our culture is so focused on extrinsic goals and they have proven that extrinsic goals make you less happy and less healthy. 
And I'll give you an, I'll give you an example about this. So they, they did a survey of teenagers. You all know what a teenager is, right? And they did this survey of teenagers, and they asked them this question. They said, what do you want to be when you grow up? 64% of them said, famous. <laughs> they wanted to be famous. And they said, no, no, more specifically what? And they said, rich and famous. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 no. Like, what do you want to do? What kind of career do you want? Okay, you want to be rich and famous, but how do you want to get there? What kind of career do you want? And these are teenagers. Are you ready for this? This is actual results. Uh, 4% of them, their, their goal in life was to be a supermodel. 17% of them, their goal in life was to be a pop star. And 33% of them, their goal was to become a professional YouTuber. Professional YouTuber. Really. You know what I say to that? Lord, help us. That's what, that's what I'm thinking. Teenagers, they're the worst. Don't ever be a teenager. Where, where are these teenagers coming up with these stupid goals? I'll tell you where they're coming from. They're parents. They've watched you live and pursue all these ridiculous things. They're not very much different than you are. And see, here's our challenge in life. We, we've got to get off this treadmill where we are focusing on these extrinsic external, uh, external goals that aren't going to get us anywhere. And you know, I'm, I learned this at a very young age. I, I, I was a teenager when I learned this, and I'll tell you the story. So I think the year was 1974. I had this uncle, he was well-to-do, and uh, every year he showed up once a summer to visit from another city. And he always had a new car because he was well-to-do, so it was always cool to see what he was driving, a new Cadillac or a new Mercedes or whatever it was. And this particular year, he showed up in this a 1974 GMC, brand new GMC motorhome. Now, I got somebody, somebody clapping. Somebody knows where this is going. Now, in 1974, just so you know, that's not what motorhomes look like. Motorhomes looked like this. That's what they looked like, the Winnebago. It looks like someone put wheels on their garage and started driving it down the road. The ugliest thing with this big wall to push, push the air and you get like a half a mile to the gallon. And then GMC comes out with this. Show the other one again, show the other one. I thought my uncle had arrived in a spaceship. I'd never seen anything like it. And it had a Cadillac Eldorado drivetrain, 455 cubic inch motor with front wheel drive. It had air suspension so that if you're on a camping spot that was crooked like this, you push a button and the whole thing leveled out like this. And I remember getting into that thing and I'm thinking, I want my uncle as my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I'm leaving home. I'm getting in this motorhome with them, and I'm going wherever they are going. So anyway, he didn't take me, and they, uh, and they went off on their camping trip, and I didn't see him for a year. And so the next year, he shows up in a station wagon. And I said, where's the motorhome? And this is what he said to me. I'll never forget it. I'd never heard it before. You all know this. And he said, the two happiest days of my life, Mark, were the day I bought it and the day... I sold it. <laughs> because that's what happens with stuff. You get sick of it so quick and it's breaking down and it's burning a million gallons of gas. He hated the thing within a few months and he couldn't wait to get rid of it. And see, that's the problem with the hedonic roller coaster. We go up and down in life because we got the wrong goals. And that's why Jesus said, you want to know who, who is really happy? 
I'll tell you who's happy. It's the people who are, who are poor in spirit and they're mournful and they're meek and they're merciful. These are the people because they've recognized that it's all about the heart and it's not about what's on the outside. So I want to wrap this message up. It'll take me a few minutes to do this. And I, I want to give you what I'm calling the inside-out pro- protocol or, or paradigm. This is, this is how you work it out in your life. This is how you move from the inside out. So I'm going to throw it up on the screen. So simple. I think you'll remember this. Your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. And your actions become your destiny. And it all starts at the core with your beliefs. And this is what the scripture says. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's the book of Proverbs. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And what happens is when we believe something, when we really actually believe it, we start to think about it. And I'll give you an example. And uh, because it's about thinking, I'm going to give it to the men. Not, not because they're smarter than the women, but I have no idea what women think, so I can't relate to them. But I do know what men think, so I'm going to share this with you. And I want to speak to you married men here, and I want you to recall about how you got married and how you got engaged and all that. Here's what happened. I know for a fact. So you've met this, this girl, and what happened is at some point, dating her and courting her, all of a sudden something happened in your heart, and you thought to yourself, I believe I might be in love. And then you couldn't stop thinking about it. Remember that? You just thought about it day and night, day and night. And you know what's going to happen. It's going to come out of your mouth. If you think it, you're going to say it. And soon enough, it came out of your mouth. And you said, I love you. I need you. I can't live without you. Will you marry me? And in a moment of weakness, she said, okay. <laughs> what was she thinking? Right? Anyway, she, she, she said, okay. So your beliefs became your thoughts. Your thoughts became your words. Your words became your actions. You went to the, the altar. And now you're happily married to her. And she, gentlemen, is your destiny. Right? You see how this all works? It's all real clever. Now, that's not how it works without me. I actually asked you. I've told you this before. I asked Kathy to marry me twice. Yeah. The first time she said no. I said, no, is there someone else? She said, there's got to be. (laughs) Oh, she's such a smart aleck, right? (laughs) So, you know, I want you to just, just want to dig into this a little further for a moment. Because if you don't believe something, you're actually not going to think about it. See, See, let me ask you this question. How many of you think about one day winning the Boston Marathon? Anybody in the room? Nobody in there. You know, last night, Pastor Steve put up his hand. I said, Pastor Steve, you've never even been in a marathon. Put your hand down. You're not going to win the Boston Marathon. You're wasting precious neurons. Put that hand down. I had to ball him out. But you see, you know you're not going to win it. You're not Kenyan. You're not going to win the Boston Marathon, right? There's no point in thinking about something that you're not going, you don't believe. And see, that's where this whole thing starts. That's why it's all about what we believe. It's all about your heart. Because once you actually believe something, then you start to think about it. So which brings me to the next one. The things you think, your thoughts become your words, right? And you know, it's, it's funny because it says, the scripture says this, out of the abundance of the heart, what? Someone finish it. The mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And see, fundamentally, most of the time, we actually say what we really believe. Now, you can fake it. I know you're in a job interview and you can fake it and you can lie and say stuff you don't believe. But at at the core, what happens is we actually normally say what we believe. And I call it the toothpaste test. 
It's really when you're under pressure, because when you're not under pressure, you can say whatever you want, whether you believe it or not. But when you're under pressure, it's the toothpaste test. It's real simple. When you grab a tube of toothpaste, when the pressure's on, what's on the inside comes out. And that's how our words work. And when we're really put into the gauntlet, we're put in the squeeze, what's on the inside, it, pop, it pops out, is what happens. And there's a great example of this in, in Mark chapter 9. Jesus meets this man. You remember he had the epileptic son who was throwing himself in the fire and the water and all of that. The disciples couldn't cure him. So they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus says this. All things are possible to them that believe. And do, do you remember what this man said to Jesus in return? He said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Now here's my question for you. Did he believe or did he not believe? He didn't believe. He didn't believe. I mean, he, said he wanted to believe, didn't he? He wanted to believe. That's why he said, I believe. And then immediately he's like, Lord, help my unbelief. I don't believe. I don't believe this. He had he'd, he'd struggled this whole time. He's like us. We're all like that. We want to believe. It's hard to believe. And you know, we know when they believed because Jesus would say, go your way. Your faith has made you well. That's not what he said to this man. Because this man, at his core, didn't believe. I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying that's a fact. And because he didn't believe it, he couldn't say it. And he said it, but he corrected it right away and said, Lord, help my belief, my unbelief. And so the second thing is this. The first thing is, is our beliefs become our thoughts. Our thoughts become our words. And then your words become your actions. So I want to tell you the story of David and Goliath, which you all know. So you, the story starts off with Goliath, and he's standing across this valley, and there's a valley in between, and the armies of Israel are there, and the armies of Philistines are there, and this man is a giant. He's nine feet, six inches, or nine inches tall, and he's a giant and a warrior from his youth, and he's going to crush anybody. And he starts taunting them and says, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of a Jewish man. Something like that. <laughs> and he's taunting them from across the way. And he says, look, here's the deal. He says, we will have a battle one-on-one, -on -one, man on man, winner take all. And this is what it said. It said, and all the men of Israel were dreadfully afraid and fled, including King Saul. And King Saul was head and shoulders above any man in Israel. He was the biggest, the strongest. He was a warrior, the warrior king, and even he fled. And then I find this story quite amusing because then along comes little David, little Bo Peep along with his sheep, and he comes in. And out of his mouth, the most incredulous things were coming. And he starts off by saying this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? And I've pointed this out before. That's very nervy and hitting below the belt, if you know what I mean. Hmm? The guys all get this. Yeah, and so he starts there, and, and then he says, you come to me with seer, sword and spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts of the armies of Israel. Why was it? that this punk kid shepherd boy thought that he was going to be able to defeat a, a, a Goliath, a, a giant. Now remember, he believed it, he thought it, now he said it. Why did he think he was going to be able to do this? Anybody know? I heard someone say it. Because he had done it before. He actually tells a story. He said, your servant killed the lion, he killed the bear. I, I, I've done it before, I can do it with this dude. He's not that big. 
He just looks big when you're up close. He wasn't worried about it. So, so anyway, that's, that's how this story begins. But that's not where it ends. Because he believed it. He thought it. He spoke it. Who remembers what happened next? He ran towards Goliath. He acted on it. He said it and acted. He didn't just stand back and let something play out. He ran against the giant with his sling and he planted a stone into the giant's forehead and he fell to his death and he went and cut off his head with his own sword. That's an incredible picture. And when we look at this, here's here's what I want you to think about. There was something in the heart of this young boy and remember why he was chosen to be king? Do you remember? When, when Samuel declared him as the prophet, he said, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, the heart. He was chosen because he was a man with a heart after God. And he went into that battle and he did everything I'm talking about here today. And the, his destiny was wrapped up in the fact that he went through all these processes. Let me, let me ask you this. If, if you were to take the story of Winnie the Pooh, where, where would Saul and David fit in? I'll tell you, Saul was Eeyore, in my opinion. It'll never work. Always depressed. You know who David was? He was Tigger. He was Tigger. Who's going to kill a giant? I'll do it. I'll do it. Tigger will do it because that's what Tiggers do best, right? Right? You know, the wonderful thing about tiggers is tiggers are a wonderful thing. Their tops are made of rubber. Their bottoms are made of springs. They're bouncy, bouncy, fancy, fancy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about tiggers is I'm the only one. That's the story of David. (laughs) I did not know I had so many fans of the tigger song. But that's the journey. So... Your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. And your actions ultimately become your destiny. And I can show it to you, all that, all that what I've just said, I can show it to you in one little verse. And it was the verse, the thing that was spoken, maybe I'll throw it up on the screen. It was the thing that was spoken to Joshua before he went into the promised land, before he went after his destiny. This is what God said to him. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Look at the underlined words. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Did you catch that? What is he supposed to do? He is supposed to meditate on it day and night. He has to start thinking about it. And then don't let it depart from your mouth. Meaning, it doesn't mean don't say it out of your mouth. It means don't stop saying it is what that means. And then you observe to do. You have to go and do it. Your words become your actions and then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Or in other words, your destiny. And see, and this is the journey that we are all on. It's the inside out journey. I'm going to close with one final story to wrap this up. A story that I think you'll be interested to hear. And it's about a celebrity by the name of Stephen Colbert. You all know him, or many of you know him from The Late Show. And Stephen Colbert was raised in Charleston, South Carolina. He was raised a Catholic. Uh, They had a terrible tragedy when he was a teenager. His father and his two brothers, Peter and Paul, Catholics, name your kids after, you know, Bible characters. And his father and his two brothers, Peter and Paul, were all killed in a tragic car, or plane crash, rather. And uh, he lost them. And then now he, he had gone away when he was 18 years old. He went to college. He went to Chicago. He was going to Northwestern University. 
And while he was there, he was studying philosophy and theater. He did want, he, his goal was to become a comedian and, and act of some sort, be in theater. Uh, but he was terribly depressed. He'd lost his brothers. He had lost his father. He was now full of anxiety and depression, and life wasn't going well for him at all. He was taking Xanax to try to deal with all of his emotional problems. And one day, it was the middle of January, he was walking down the street in Chicago, and there was a man standing on a street corner handing out Gideon's Bibles. And this man handed him a Gideon New Testament. He took this Bible, but by this point in his life, he was an avowed atheist. He had renounced his Catholic faith, he had renounced God, and he was going to do it on his own. But he wasn't doing very well on his own. And he took that Gideon's Bible and it was so cold he couldn't open it. And he forced it and finally it cracked open. And it cracked open right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And it cracked open in Matthew chapter 6. And the words that were at the top of the page were this. Therefore do not worry about your life. What you shall eat and what you shall wear. And then it goes on and on and on. And in that moment, that critical moment... He felt like God was speaking directly to him. He went back to his apartment and he didn't read anything else but the Sermon on the Mount. And he read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 5, 6, and 7, again and again and again and again. And something changed and something began to transform within him. And long story short, as he rededicated his life to Christ and to his faith, and what happened is his whole life turned around. The, the depression was gone and the Xanax was gone and his career began to take off. And now, of course, he, you know, he's a Hollywood superstar. But here's what's fascinating about this story. If you ask him about his faith, he will be unequivocal and bold about it. And he'll say, the Sermon on the Mount changed my life. And he will tell the story of what happened that day on the streets of Chicago. Because it's all about the heart, people. And that's why the scripture says, guard the heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. All of life is inside out. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to take a moment, like we always do, with every head bowed, every eye closed. Because I know there's people in this room that have not invited Christ into your heart. And that's what this moment's about. And you're not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment. You're not standing on a cold street in Chicago, but you're standing in this building at the same moment. And if you have never had that time where you've invited Christ into your life, I want to give you that opportunity to do so. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Not calling you forward. Not singling you out. Not asking you to say anything publicly. With nobody looking around between you and me and Jesus... If today you've arrived at that moment in your life and you'd like to invite Christ into your heart, I want you to slip up your hand. Just take a moment right where you are and slip up your hand. Thank you, sir. Thank you on the side. Anybody else want to join these folks? I'm going to extend it a little broader. Maybe you knew him in the past like Stephen Colbert did and you've turned away and you need to come back. Why don't you raise your hand as well? Who in this room would say yes? Yeah, there's some more hands going up in this room. People who need to return. All right, said I wasn't going to single anybody out, so we're all going to pray together. Ready? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. I'm so grateful that I found that moment and became poor in spirit and accepted the sacrifice you made on the cross and that you took my sins away. You rose again on the third day 
And you began and will continue the process of changing me from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.